Have you ever experienced a moment in your life when you felt completely isolated and alone, carrying on with your day-to-day routine while no one around you truly understood what was happening behind closed doors? Come along with me on a journey of storytelling, healing, and growing in community. This is Unleashing Your Inner Truth. Ladies and gentlemen, prepare to be moved and inspired as we embark on a deeply heartfelt journey in the latest episode of Unleashing Your Inner Truth podcast. Today, we introduce you to an awe-inspiring duo of Jean and her mother, Kathleen. Together, they'll share a story that will grip your heart, a tale of resilience, hope, and unimaginable strength in the face of every parent's most dreadful nightmare the battle against pediatric cancer. Stay with us as you are about to witness their extraordinary journey towards triumph and newfound power. Welcome, Jean and Kathleen, to Unleashing Your Inner Truth podcast. Thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. Thank you. Can you tell us how it all began for you and your family? Um, So first of all, Jean was a really active kid and all of our kids were really active and Jean happens to also have a twin. And we had the girls in gymnastics and Jean kept complaining about knee pain, knee pain, knee pain. And Mm -hmm. it took us a long time and quite a few different doctor's trips to finally have the doctor say, we can't figure this out, so we need a different test. And they gave Jean a basically a a bone scan test. And it was kind of amazing because at first we were told it's growing pains. And then Jean went to this gymnastics competition and her grandfather was there and she landed on her knee and all of a sudden started hopping in a very funny way. And her grandfather, my dad actually said, you've got to do something about that. There's Mm -hmm. something wrong. Right. Um, And When we finally had the bone scan, we went to the hospital. They gave her this um, special radioactive dye that goes into your veins. So this is the first time, you know, Jean is really experiencing this. And then they take a scan and you can actually see it traveling. And as they're taking a scan of the six-year-old kid, all of a sudden you could see this one spot in her femur that was a bulge. And then Mm -hmm. the technician turned around and like gently picked her up and put her down. Like she was delicate. That's that's how you knew you had, you felt it when you saw that. You could see it on the scan and then you could, you know, you could see it on the scan. You could figure out what was going on. And then the way he treated her after that scan, we're like, "Uh Oh, there's something there. There's something there. Wow. What was your first reaction when you heard that your daughter had cancer? Well, um, the first thing that happened is because the tumor was inside her femur, they couldn't tell what it was at first. And so as soon as we found out that was that she needed surgery, we had to go around and find all of the different surgeons that were out there and, and, you know, figure out what the best strategy was. Um, We found the surgeon. She had to go um, into the hospital. They explained what, and we had to make some crazy choices too. They're like, okay, um, how do you want to patch up her bone after she has the surgery? 
And we had to actually like sign waivers because we were using um, a cadaver bone to replace it. And they talked about like how our what bone- is, What is that? Um, it was actually a piece. So you know how some people sign um, their, their licenses that they're gonna donate their bodies to science? Yes. Well, that actually is part of what your body gets used for. Um, so we borrowed some bone, a piece of bone from somebody who died and donated their body. Oh, wow. um, and we had to sign off because there's a possibility of Jean's body rejecting it. But when it comes to bone, it's actually not something that happens often. So we had to know all those facts ahead of time when we were making those decisions. And as parents, you know, we were, we're pretty new parents. Our oldest right. kids were six years old at the time. And having that information and making those decisions seemed just like such huge decisions to make. Oh my goodness. Wow. So you have younger children yeah. and then you know something isn't right. Doctors are telling you, yeah. hey, we gotta we have to, you know, do a scan and we have to figure out what's going on. And then to find out, we gotta put someone else's bone into my your, baby, your baby, right? Okay. Like that, 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 that's traumatic enough to hear something like that. Right. Yeah. And so understanding all of that, can you talk about honestly, like what is actually going through your mind? Cause I can only imagine I've been blessed with one child, right? But I can only imagine hearing the doctors telling you all this information, not knowing um, the science behind it or the medical terms behind this, that your child now has cancer, has to be put, has to have a, a, a bone, right, in, in, in yeah. her body that you don't know what, how she's going to react. Can you really talk and, and kind of walk us through that, what you were feeling, thinking in that moment for us? So the first, the, the surgery part is we didn't know what she had and the doctors listed the possibility until he got inside the bone to see what was inside the bone. Uh -huh. So we were looking at a four, four and a half hour surgery, you know, could even be longer waiting in the waiting room while your baby's there. And that's, that's the hardest thing is like you, you know, you're encouraging Jean, you are watching her get ready for surgery you're saying no you can't eat breakfast on the way you're leaving your other two babies you know i, I left them with my aunt marcia to be babysat and so mm -hmm. there's whole family at home waiting for that and then the worst part is as they're prepping gene for surgery and being in this kind of prep room and you know what watching her count down you know they tell gene as they're giving her the medicine to make her go to sleep before her surgery, mm -hmm. you know, they're telling Jean count down and you're talking to her and you're trying to stay strong as a mom. And then as they, that's, that's when I really lost it. Every time <laughs> Jean's had a few surgeries and mm -hmm. every time they wheel her away, that's when I get to my weak point, you know, because it's out of your control and, as a mom and as mm -hmm. a like a type a personality i'm used to being in control right, right, Jean? right. <laughs> yes, Jean did right, right. we want to you know we want to these are these are our babies yeah right? these are our babies and you do everything you can to protect them and all of a sudden 
it's out of your control and you don't know what's going to happen and you have to sign all these papers. And a lot of times you don't, you know, as much as the doctors can tell you and as much as you can do your research and, and talk to them and find the best doctors, you just don't really know. Right. As until it's happening. And, and yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm in, I'm in awe to hear something like that. Right. Cause yeah. nobody wants to hear that your precious baby has cancer. Right. Yeah. And so how do you break that to her? What, what do you say to your child who is going to be having surgery, who, you know, this is a life threatening illness, right? So how do you break that down to a six-year-old so that she can understand understand it or not, right? Because, I, you know, at that age, I don't know, how much can you understand? It, it, it was hard. Jean, what did, what did we tell you? Um, so I knew I was sick. I don't think I knew the degree to which I was sick until after the fact, actually, um, until we started getting involved with Relay for Life. Like, I don't think I had the, I think when I was going through it, I never really understood the severity to which the disease, like the full extent. Um, and I think part of me thinks that's just because when you're six, you have this very limited worldview. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And like your world is very small and you sort of only know what you experience. So I don't even think I knew what I had was cancer or really understood what having cancer meant mm -hmm. until after the fact when I started meeting other cancer survivors and hearing about the way they spoke about it. And it's funny, I actually didn't know about the cadaver bone until <laughs> I was about a teenager. Um, like I didn't even know that. Not because I don't think you guys tried to explain it to me, just because I don't think it really made sense to me because when you're right. six, you don't really understand the complicated medical side of it. Right. As soon as we got the information that, you know, they, they opened her up and the doctor came out after surgery when she was in recovery and let us know what she had. And one of the lucky things, and if you, if you can call this lucky, <laughs> is that because we discovered it so early, her growth plates weren't affected because mm -hmm. we got the tumor out. Like if we didn't know that she had that tumor inside her femur and she went on to play soccer and, um, you know, got into a, you know, a collision actually could have shattered the bone and just destroyed the bone because that type of tumor that she had was weakening the bone from the inside. Mm -hmm. And so it could have been much worse. So there, there are times when you say, okay, she had this, she had this in and we discovered it and then we got her through it. I think our family's philosophy, whether my kids or my husband like it or not, my family's philosophy is, is that because, <laughs> because I say it is, is because basically you're going to deal with what you have because God recognizes that you're strong enough. Like he mm -hmm. only gives you what you can handle. handle yeah. That's, that's definitely our family's philosophy. So that's, that's what I tell them. But, you know, there are times when it's hard to believe that as mm -hmm. they're wheeling your baby away and you don't know what's going to happen after they wheel her away. Yeah. Can you talk about um, the impact or the adjustments that your family had to make? Because I, I'm assuming that, you know, she comes home and I'm sure there's a lot of things that um, people don't know that has, you know, that that changes your, your, your day-to-day -day routine. It changes your family dynamic. Has that been different? Did that change for, for, 
for your family? Oh, it changed our family tremendously. Um, both my husband and I met while we were coaching sports. We nice. are an athletic family. We're the family that like runs a 5k on Thanksgiving. Um, oh, you didn't tell me this. You didn't yeah, tell me this. we, you know, both my husband and I have always been into athletics. And so the first thing that happens, you know, like even, even when Jean was first diagnosed, it's because she was in gymnastics because she was playing softball. Mm -hmm. Um, so all of a sudden we're like, wait a second, we have to keep this kid engaged in something else or even we have to figure out how else to engage her and and you know give her something to do so um <laughs> we actually got a piano so we are an athletic family we are not a musical family uh -huh. but i was like we have to have something for her to do right and we found a music teacher and we tried to bring music into our family <laughs> emphasis on tried yeah <laughs> so we're much better athletics than we are you know playing mm -hmm. music we appreciate music so that was one thing is that we brought in a piano and then everybody in the family had to have music lessons <laughs> wow. and you know just so that we we were doing something together um we got the piano from aunt marcia right yeah we did we did and even it, it changes for example how much attention the others got you know, because mm -hmm. um, Jean was a twin and up until she was sick, I was coaching a softball team for them. And then all of a sudden, poor Alex had to keep going to softball by herself. And as a matter of fact, at one point when Alex was playing a softball game, we wheeled Jean in while she was still recovering from her surgery and she had her cast on. We moved her bed into our family room because it's on the lowest level of our floor and there's multiple stairs so so that we even moved our dinners to our patio so that we could all sit down and eat together because of mm -hmm. the stairs and it's yeah. something that able-bodied families you never think about that so we had to change the way we did dinner we had to change the way even Jean went to the bathroom you know like it's a it's an entire family organization mm -hmm. my mom came and made you're gonna laugh at this but because she had this special brace on that kept her leg immobile going to the bathroom was I can imagine, a nightmare a nightmare and so my mom actually made these special velcro underpants do you remember that Jean? i remember those <laughs> you gotta um, get creative oh my god right? you should have seen these yeah i mean and so it could go around and through the the brace and it's it's all wow. something new and even like as a mom, you're like, woohoo, potty trained. And then all of a sudden you kind of go back. Even like when Jean was in the hospital with her first surgery, she, you, you don't think about how to bathe them or how to take care of her hair. Mm -hmm. And when mm -hmm. she came home from the hospital after that first surgery, my hair, she had really long, beautiful hair. And then it was such a rat's nest because she was lying in bed all day and rubbing her head against the pillow. And it was, it was the worst knot I've ever tried to dealt with. And the poor kid was already in so much pain, trying to rehab her leg and trying to learn how to walk. Um, her first grade field day, she had to do it while she was in a wheelchair. And many of the schools that she went to, while they're required to be wheelchair accessible, they're not. You know, if they, like our school was built in 1900. And so it was really difficult to get her in and out and 
you know, she missed gym. She missed so many activities. She missed, mm-hmm. um, you know, we were looking at pictures the other day in kindergarten. They were in dance. <laughs> they were in gymnastics. Mm-hmm. And so we were just, it was a gigantic change for the family. And that was just the first bout. That was the first. And and so before, because I know you, you wanted, to, there's more to the story Much than... More, yeah than what you have mentioned so far. But Jean, I hear your mom talk about um, you're not being able to, you know, play sports, not even being able to fully be engaged in um, co-curricular activities. Can you talk about how, how was that for you, right? Not being able to do those things that you loved, right? Um, so one thing when I think back to when I was sick that I remember really clearly is it was very boring. Mm-hmm. Like there would be like long stretches of time where I would not be able to like do much or go many places. Mm-hmm. Like particularly after this first surgery, I was in the hospital for about a week and I was, from what I remember, I was basically bedridden for that entire week. And when you're six, there's only so much you can do from a hospital bed. And it just gets really boring. Um, like pain aside, um, you're kind of just, restless, yeah, right? like, like you're kind of just re- sitting around, like waiting for something to come and happen to you almost. And like, mm-hmm. they do have like that you had like a TV. Um, they had this game that I remember really clearly. <laughs> I remember that game. Um, where you were like flipping pancakes and it would say like pancake goes up pancake goes <laughs> oh down. my goodness um i'm sure yeah. you don't you don't want to think about pancakes now right? <laughs> oh, no, i'm not not crazy about pancakes anymore i was definitely sad to be missing the things that i was missing like i was i remember like there was one time my siblings were going to gymnastics and that's when i was still in the wheelchair and i think this was alex but alex was like are you coming to gymnastics and i was like look at me like does it look like i'm going to gymnastics alex like what are you thinking yeah. They definitely made efforts to like keep me engaged and like do things, mm-hmm. but like it, it did kind of stink to see everyone doing all of these things that I couldn't do because I physically was uh, incapable of doing them. Mm-hmm. I'll add two. She's a twin. And so one of the things that terrified me was that so early in their academic career, and again, mm-hmm. Kevin and I are both uh, teachers, is that this might put Jean behind because she was missing so much school, because, you know, we were trying to balance her pain and, you know, we wanted to keep the girls at the same spot and the same level. And especially in first grade, that's when Mm -hmm. kids learn how to read. And thank goodness, like Jean and and Alex both and Casey, all the girls did great in their academics in elementary school. Um, But I was really worried. And we were, when you're dealing with this, you could put yourself into a really sad spot. Like, why does this happen to her? Why is this happening to our family? Mm-hmm. Or you could just say, okay, and and try to count your blessings. And we were blessed with a, a teacher who came to our, um, came to our house, mm-hmm. who really kept Jean up with her class. Wow. So was I was volunteer or the, was that something that the school provided it? Um, but, um, her name was Eileen Besser. She's a, actually a good friend of mine, but she put in so much effort to make sure that Jean was staying on top of the curriculum and keeping her, you know, she came extra hours. She, she worked so hard on keeping Jean in on pace. And even when, 
like those, those are the things that you begin to learn about when your kid is sick is like pain management. Um, again, we count our blessings. We have friends who helped us with that, like learning how to give pain medication before pain grows. Um, and how do you, how does a six-year-old explain, like, I'm beginning to feel it. Right. And so we had to look for signs in her, mm -hmm. you know, whether she's fidgety, um, so that we could help manage her pain because that way, if you stop the pain before it gets to really, it's, it's easier it's to stop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's easier to stop it before it grows. And once it gets too high, then it's harder to pull it back down again. And then she loses concentration. I mean, the poor kid had a hard time sleeping. It was, yeah, it was, it was hard on every part of the family. Mm -hmm. um, and on top of trying to go, to go to work, trying to, I'm sure, pay your bills. And, you know, you have a child um, who is ill. And I'm sure at night wasn't easy. A lot of, you know, yeah, I can imagine. I was lucky enough to be a stay-at-home mom mm -hmm. up until that year. Okay. And as we were going through that, we recognized, we're like, wait a second, because even though insurance pays for most of this, mm -hmm. there's still out-of-pocket things that you need to deal with. And so just as we began the whole process, um, we decided it's time for me to go back to work. Mm -hmm. And actually, one of the biggest, craziest things I've ever done is I got an um, interview and then an opportunity to go for um, where you have to do a demo class, mm -hmm. a demonstration lesson. And so mm -hmm. I literally left her bedside at the hospital to go present a demo demonstration lesson so I could get a job wow. so that we could get, you know, make sure that mm -hmm. we had good ex insurance. You know, we had one form of insurance, but it doesn't pay for everything. Right. Right. And that's, that's so important to, you know, for, fa yeah. for families who may be experiencing something like this to know, right. That, um, you have to have, you know, money mm -hmm. saved because you never know, um, how things can turn out. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that when you and I spoke um, on the phone, uh, you talked about there was an incident that happened um, right before she was almost done with chemotherapy. Oh, Can you talk about that? Well, just to let um, your your the listeners know, so Jean um, recovered her ability to walk in the summer of her when she was. Um, six going on seven. And then by set, and we had a lovely summer. We took the kids to Florida. We took the kids to Cape Cod, kind of celebrating that she was better and walking mm -hmm. again. And then very quickly into September, Jean fell in her second grade year. She fell. All of a sudden, we discovered like when she fell, like there was a soreness there that shouldn't have been for the type of fall it was. So boom, immediately right back to the doctors. The doctors knew her history. And then they're like, Whoop, there it is again. Because normally, um, so Jean, you're going to say what you had because I oh. care about pronunciation. <laughs> it's right? a long word. Yeah. So yeah. I had something called Langerhans cell histiocytosis, um, which is, uh, it affects your white blood cells. It affects your Langerhans cells. And it causes what I, it there's an overproduction of the white blood cells in the bones, mm. right? Yeah. And it causes these growths called granulomas. Um, so the first one I had was in my leg, and that's why I needed the surgery to have them take out that bone with the um, tumor in it and replace it with the cadaver bone. 
And then the second time I had it, the granulomas were actually in my back and in my skull. And those aren't really areas that you can take out and replace with a cadaver. Um, so it needed to be yeah. treated with chemo. They were on your spine and on the base of her skull. Um, yeah. So the next round of treatment was chemo. And the way chemo was administered for me was they put a port port catheter in my chest um, because chemo, like the chemicals in that medicine, and actually there's a bunch of different kinds of chemo medicines and they all affect you differently, but mm -hmm. um, they're super caustic. And if they would were to just go in your veins as administered through an IV, it would burn. Um, so I had a port catheter, which is a bunch of tubes and wiring. And what we're building to is on, I think my last round of chemo. Last. Um, well, it was the last because they never followed no, up. No, you, you actually got your oh, last round of chemo through an IV instead of through the port. I don't remember that. Yeah. Oh, um, but on um, the that, second. That, that, that was the pick line, right? Yeah, the pick line. Yeah, and the pick line can be very, very um, tricky. My son had a pick line when he was young, too, because he, his body does not take antibiotics correctly. Mm. So one of the things that they do is also put the pick line that goes all the way to the heart. Yeah. But then there is. If correct me if I'm wrong, if I remember this correctly, you you have to be really careful with the pick lines because mm -hmm. you cannot raise your hands high because it can actually damage your heart. So there's this level of things that you, you have to be really careful, right? Mm -hmm. You can't do sports, you can't do am I is that correct, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so yes. I think so I don't think I had similar. like the same kind of pick line as your son did because I was able to like be more active, but like the heart thing. Um, so it had a line going to my heart and well, it had a line going into your vein. Veins. Oh, and through then, the heart. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, um, and because it went into her vein and she actually throughout her chemotherapy, she had two different rounds of chemo. She had chemo once a week for, wow. um, for a while, for a few months. So every week we would go in, um, and by that time she was actually being treated at Columbia Presbyterian. Mm -hmm. Um, and so as she was getting her chemotherapy, like it's, it's, we've had some bad experiences <laughs> and, and because, um, if it's okay, I'll, I'll, yeah, go, I'll go on. Um, so, um, while Jean ended up with this second round where she had to have chemo, she had to have surgery to put the port catheter in and that was right at her sister's fifth birthday party. And so it was a very dark time because I was trying to keep the other two girls kind of on a normal thing. And yeah. we had this birthday party for the five-year-old. We were going to go pumpkin patch and they were going to have costumes, but the weather was terrible and it was pouring rain. And it was just a disaster. And then on her sister's actual birthday, Jean had surgery. And those are the times, uh, like I said, like, so she gets wheeled in. Um, and ironically, the surgeon that did the second surgery to put the port catheter in was actually a, an alumni of my husband. So he, it was a high school graduate of Kevin's wow. and you know, it's, it's just one of those weird things, but they wheeled her. And that's when, like, I was by myself at that time. I was by myself. And like, that's when I walked into like the hallway and really mm -hmm. kind of lost it as a, oh, as a wow. parent, because it's like, here we go again. Um, 
and cried because she had to have this happen. And then on the first day of her chemo, her first chemotherapy, it was Halloween. And so she misses her sister's birthday party. She misses her dad's birthday. She misses, um, and we were determined, like when she got her first round of chemotherapy, it was Halloween. We got her back for the Halloween parade because she was a flapper dressed up as the same as her first grade teacher because the first grade teacher supported her so much through this first round of illness that they were twinning. And then as we were going later on in the afternoon, that's when she got really sick. Yeah. She was really so sick from the chemo. That Halloween was like the first round of chemo I had done and um, it made me super nauseous. So I just, I couldn't go trick-or-treating that day. So Halloween 2007 was the first time I had ever had chemotherapy after the port catheter insertion surgery. And I think the surgery happened on the 29th. And one thing I remember feeling really, like one feeling I remember really strongly about that surgery was how scared I was for it, which I felt really silly about. Like as like a little seven-year-old, I felt like it was silly that I was scared for this surgery because this surgery was much less invasive and it was much less serious than my first surgery. And I remember mm -hmm. I didn't feel scared on the first surgery. What do you think what, what do you think that was all about? So I think the first surgery, the reason I didn't feel scared is because like you can't really understand what's going to happen to you at right. that age until it happens to you. And like my adult brain here is rationalizing for my little brain, but I think <laughs> now that I had this understanding of what would happen after these surgeries, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. I was in a wheelchair for six months, it hurt. I think now that I had this experience with the surgery, it was scary going into another one, right. even though I knew this one was different, that fear was still really present for me. Um, and it was kind of hard to grapple with because I remember, like, I just remembered feeling like you shouldn't be afraid of this because you've already been through worse. But it's, but you never know, right? It's yeah. Like, so it's like, um, you don't know, like you knew, but it's, yeah, like back at it again, it may be different. Yeah. So I just remember like feeling both this fear and then like this kind of like, almost like this shame for like being afraid, which is very like funny because mm -hmm. it's all coming from a seven-year-old. And it's like, well, of course you're going to be scared going into surgery. Right. You're seven mm -hmm. years it's old. Normal. But that was very clear to me, just this fear. Um, and then we had the surgery, which went fine. And then I had my first round of chemo. And you one, did not feel well. No, the chemo on. hurt. Like that first round of chemo. So like they had put something on my chest for like the first couple of days I had mm -hmm. the surgery. And then now that it was time to get the chemo, it, they had to take that portion off my chest. And I remember fighting with the nurses and being like, leave it on, leave it on, leave it on, because it just hurt so much coming out. Um, and obviously it had to come out because right. like, I think it's an infection risk. Um, it's a medical procedure, but I just remember like really not wanting them to like remove this piece that had been attached to me for the past couple of days because it was so painful. And actually one fond thing I remember from that Halloween was we came to the like the pediatric oncology ward. It was all decked out for Halloween. And then they let us go trick-or-treating within the mm -hmm. ward, um, which actually I thought was really fun. Um, and I thought it was really cool because then I came back to school and I was like, look, I already got candy, everyone. Like, wow. suck yeah. it. Um, <laughs> After she had chemotherapy. After you were in pain. Yeah. Not feeling well. Yeah. Miserable, I can imagine. Oh, my God. Um, 
And then I actually couldn't go trick-or-treating that day because the nausea from the chemo like set in a little bit later. And like we had come home from school after the Halloween parade. I just felt so sick that like I was like, I can't go. I have to tell you, our support system while Jean was going through this was amazing. Mm -hmm. So my husband and I both were teachers and both of our school systems were amazing because we set it up so that because Jean was going to have to have multiple months of every Wednesday going in for this chemo. And as you go into the oncology ward, you actually see the same people and you become friends with this people Mm -hmm. who are going through it all and, and you support each other through this. But um, like our schools allowed me to take every other Wednesday afternoon off and just be there with, with Jean. And then her grandfather, Marty would drive us into the city because just getting into Columbia Presbyterian and finding parking and we would do it. um, Taking chemo is a long process and the actual taking of the the chemotherapy isn't that long. What what do you mean it's a long process? What do you mean by that? The first thing that they do when you go into on your day of treatment is they have to take your blood and, and decide if you are strong enough to take the chemotherapy, if you are white blood cell count is strong enough if you there's any infections because that that was also another thing that was terrifying we tried to keep jean in school as much as possible but she had a suppressed immune system so she could get sick real easily mm-hmm. and what she doesn't remember there was one time when she spiked a horrifically terrifying fever where her fever was going up to like 104. When no, she I was remember on. that. We oh, went to the, that. Yeah, we went to the hospital that day. <laughs> we um, went to the I remember that. Um, <laughs> and it's just a terrifying thing because mm-hmm. your daughter is, has, and it was actually on Marty's 70th birthday. And again, we had to leave everybody and I took her in and mm-hmm. she had, she missed a lot, you know, she, she missed, missed a lot. So, so they have, so they have to check to see if your white blood cells are strong enough for the chemo for the chemo and then what happens after that so that whole process takes a while they take your vitals they send the blood work down to the lab then you have to wait around and as jean knows like just the the boredom of that and trying to keep her um entertained and i'm not a huge fan of video games but we bought right. these game boy systems no they were ds's or ds's it was some type of game yeah you know, and i'm like read a book and she's playing ds and and i'm like okay because she's a, you know a kid who's getting this stuff and there's also other things that go along with it like so she is immune suppressed she also had to take these steroids that gave her this thing called pan face so, you know, she and her sister look pretty similar, but the steroid makes your face swell up to three, four times the size. And oh my goodness. Yeah. And it's funny because now I can like walk down the street and say, all right, that little one is under treatment. I know that one's sick because you see the results of some of these steroids. So you recognize as other children who may have be going through the, be same, going through thing. the same thing as because you already yeah. went through it yourself. Wow. That's yeah. yeah. And so with the pan face, um, how the were moon the moon face, the moon face, the moon face, because okay. it, she, her face swelled up. So what do they do to kind of get her face back to how, how long does it take? And what do they do to get her back to normal? Um, so she's given these 
steroids and the one steroid that she was taking at the time was prednisone i have a whole list of all the medications and wow. things like that but they said that as soon as she's done taking it and the prednisone was there to help her body take the chemotherapy mm -hmm. and for her, to help her immune system which you know that's that's the problem with chemotherapy they're trying to kill things in her body and these white blood cells that are misbehaving but then those white blood cells are also the things that keep her healthy when she does get a, you know, a germ, and if you think about elementary school, there's germs everywhere. And that was also like a hard decision to make because we didn't want her to fall behind. We didn't like having her home and homeschooling. So we made the decision with the doctors that she should stay in school while she was, she was doing this. So she barely missed, she missed Wednesday afternoons in her second grade but she, she barely missed any days. Like they, she's a tough kid. And I don't know if that's like good or bad that we raised her to be so tough or mm -hmm. that she was born with this toughness in her um, because she didn't want to miss school. Like that was, I liked thing. being at school. I liked going to school. I liked being with my friends. I liked the classes. I liked my teachers. Like I, I liked going to school and mm -hmm. I didn't want to miss it, you yeah. know, and I'm happy I didn't. Yeah. The worst day without a doubt through all, I mean, there's, there were bad days in this process and our entire support system was fantastic, you know, trying to help us with nutrition, um, in the town that we live in, in Glen Rock, the families, um, from her second grade used to really help us because we would be away all afternoons. And mm -hmm. then the other two and both of us were working, trying to make sure that we kept up the insurance and, you know, the support system. So like they used to bring us dinners on Wednesdays when we were at the hospital, her grandfather, Marty taught her how to crunchify sandwiches. Cause he would go out into New York and come back with all this food. Cause you could bring food in. He would know it would be, um, we had the same meal we ate every chemotherapy treatment. Um, and it was a roast beef sandwich with potato chips but you would take the potato chips and you put them on top of the sandwich to crunchify them. It was a very strict Aww. schedule. I was not happy. I think there was one time he didn't come because he um, couldn't for some reason. And you were in charge of the food and she brought like a lasagna because I think she was like, oh my God, let's have a hot meal. That'll be mm. so good. But I was so mad because it wasn't my roast beef sandwich. No, with that was crunchy. Crunchy. <laughs> it um, wasn't the usual yeah. stuff. It was changed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but sort of like going back to that worst day, like I think I'm someone or in this experience, I was someone with like sort of a tendency to be unlucky in terms of the <laughs> odds. Like out of every hundred thousand people, I think only one or two have this disease from like the numbers I've been looking mm -hmm. at that. I think that's like a yearly statistic. So, and usually when they're diagnosed, it's between two and three. Um, but even just going and then like of the people with this disease, the number of them that get the tumors is even lower. It's like something like 8%. Um, but I got really unlucky during the chemotherapy when I had the port break and it sent this big piece of rubber tubing. Seven I think, inches. I thought it was eight. Seven, eight. All right. It was, it was, but anyway, it was bigger than my heart at the time because I was seven. Um, but it sent this big piece of rubber tubing into my heart from the veins um, and they, I needed an emergency surgery to pull the tubing out of my heart. Um, because obviously it's a foreign body in your heart. It's terrible. Uh, it's terrible. The worst day, the worst. I was, again, Kevin and I took every other week and this was Kevin's week. 
I actually, when she's in getting her chemo, I keep my cell phone on and I get a call. Actually, I can remember I was in seventh period and I get a call. You have to come into the hospital right away. And I was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And they're like, there's a piece of her tube stuck in her heart. And wow. like, I literally walked out of my class and I walked down to the office and I remember my hands shaking. I'm like, I'm leaving, cover my class. And they're like, why? And I was like, there's something stuck in Jean's heart. I have to get to the hospital. And I go from the office to my, to go pick up my books and, and my bag and get my keys. And at that moment in time, the, the most blessed principal ever, like he actually had called the police and he was getting his coat on to drive me because there was no way I could have driven myself because my brain was, you know, there's something stuck in your seven-year-old baby's heart. And uh, actually I ended up like a teacher who had the last period off, got in the car and I barely remember trying to give her directions. So like he called the police so they could escort us to the hospital, you know, um, and we got there and they're like, yep, the doctors are like, well, whatever, there's something stuck in her heart. And then she goes and she gets this, it's not an EKG. You got it's an, an EEG, right? EEG, an echocardiogram. And again, like, why am I always the one looking at these strange things? <laughs> you know, they're looking at the bone scans and I could see in this scan, this EEG, I could actually see the piece of tubing in her heart. And then we're talking to, we had to move from the, from the pediatric oncology mm -hmm. to the pediatric cardiatric. And they're like, go ahead. It's across the street. I'm like, just walk across nothing. the street. They go, yeah, just walk across the street. I'm like, she got something stuck in her heart. They go, yeah, just don't let her run. Don't let her heartbeat get up too high. I was like, okay. Wow. <laughs> it's crazy. And then, and then like they kind of explained how this was going to happen and they go in at your legs into the, the veins and in one side they insert a camera and the other side they insert a, another tube where they literally went into her heart with this camera mm -hmm. up the vein of one leg and then up the vein of the other leg they put in this tube that had a little lasso and then using the camera the doctor lassoed a piece of the um, thing pulled it out of her veins pulled it out it's crazy it was crazy, wow. crazy. That was a painful day for me. Um, Cause like I said before, the chemo is caustic. Like it, mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. is like, they are chemicals that burn. And the way we found out this port was broken was they were injecting the chemo into my chest and it burned, like it burned going into my chest, which had never happened before. Like this was my second to last round of chemo, you know? Mm -hmm. I was not a newbie in that regard and they start administering the chemo and I start yelling. I'm like, stop, like this hurts, like you have to stop. So obviously they stopped. And then they were like, what is going on? So they tried it again to see like, was this wow. going to cause yeah. pain again? Mm -hmm. And it did. Um, and then that's when they were like, something's oh no, yeah, like something is bad, wrong like something you. not good is happening. And they knew Jean, like Jean is a tough kid because every time she had chemo, she insisted on removing the 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 needle the needle herself like she mm -hmm. would she's like no 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 and she wouldn't let this is so pre-covid by the way this is something that would not like i there's no way i even washed my now, hands right? like but there was a needle and it wasn't like hard for me to grab it um and so they would administer it in my chest and then they would let me take the needle out myself mm -hmm. Wow, um, that's, that's so strange. Right, I like, I, I, like I, I, it's it's 
funny he's saying that out loud because that's so like 2007 like that is not happening in the year 2023 but yeah so like that was that was the worst it was tough on everybody it was tough on everybody because all of a sudden her sisters knew something was wrong because all of a sudden like mom doesn't come home like mom and dad don't come home and there's babysitters again actually Jean doesn't remember this but a couple of the my best friend a couple of women moms from the neighborhood they actually drove her stuffed animal into the hospital because they knew that she they knew that she shouldn't wake up and not have her bunny with her so she which by the way she stole from her sister it was a very special bunny I think I was officially declared healthy when I was eight years old. Like I remember going into my third grade class and talking to my teacher and telling her, I was like, I am officially healthy. And I gave her a high five. (laughs) And that after we did, like after the cancer experience, um, we got pretty involved in Relay for Life. Mm -hmm. And I actually began speaking about my experience at these Relay for Life events, Mm -hmm. which was sort of when I first realized, I think, the gravity of what I had survived. Because when you're going through it, not that, like, you know it's normal, but, like, I think it feels more normal than it is when you're, like, in the thick of it. And then it was only when I came out of it and I saw people reacting to the way that I shared my story that's when I realized that this was abnormal. And like, I think to the extent to which this experience was abnormal. And I think something I struggled with was like this concept of like surviving. Cause I think in my head, and I actually, I know other people who have survived cancer who have felt similarly about this, but I think in my head, I thought that once like the chemo was finished, then the cancer would be over and it would no longer impact my life. Mm -hmm. And so for a really long time, I tried to like, not like pretend like it didn't happen, but pretend like I wasn't really affected by it, that it was sort of something that I had just gone through Mm -hmm. and then it was over. And this really changed when I was 17 and I was applying to colleges because I really wanted to go to West Point Um, and I worked really hard. I passed the physical fitness exam. My grades were good. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had actually gotten something called the letter of assurance from West Point which told me that pending um, nominations from your uh, congressional representative, which I did get, medical clearance, and like you have to maintain your grades, you can't fail all your classes because then they won't accept you. Um, But my grades were fine, I got the nominations, but I didn't get the medical clearance. How come? Um, Because of the cancer, Um, because I had multiple tumors of the cancer, they would not give me clearance to go in. even though you were already clear and were told that you were healthy mm-hmm. at the age of eight, they were still not. They would, that. yeah. They, so it, I, it was quite a fight to be perfectly honest. Had she just had one bout, mm-hmm. it was she, the multiple tumors yeah, that, got that me. she would have been okay. Okay. We, it was, it was like, we had to go back into Columbia Presbyterian and we went back to the doctor and got a note from the doctor arguing that she, mm-hmm is clean and clear and this Mm -hmm. won't happen again Mm -hmm. um we actually we have this amazing letter signed by the entire congressional delegation of the state of new jersey (laughs) cory booker bob menendez Menendez, and my representative josh gottheimer all signed this letter for me 
Um, they went to bat for her to try to get her in. Mm -hmm. And it's the second time or third or fourth time, like it's just crushing as a, as a parent to watch her go through that because she that. I didn't get the clearance. Worked so hard. Mm -hmm. She did everything. She had that leadership out the wazoo points. Like there's a certain number of points that you need she had. Um, she, she was an amazing athlete. Um, you know, she had her, her test scores were off the charts. And so she actually, she's not going to say this. She was one of the first members of the class accepted by West Point because, wow. and she got oh, this letter of assurance so early. She and I got it like September 30th. I right. Think. So if you think about her senior year, September 30th, she, she thinks she's going someplace right. and we're celebrating. And like, once you get this letter, like, of course, she's going to get the nomination. And we went to a ceremony where she got this nomination. Mm -hmm. And so she gets in and it's like, this is where she's going. This is where her future is. And then we hit bumps in the road, like all the way. So December. I knew like, no, actually it lasted till April. I Ooh. knew, um, I knew going in, like I had spoken with my recruiter. I knew that I wasn't going to pass the initial medical clearance. But my recruiter had told me that since I had gotten this letter of assurance, I was going to get a waiver to kind of override the lack of medical clearance. So we're going like, I get the acceptance in September. And then basically from September to April, we're going to like all of these different places to prove to them that I am healthy and we're fighting and we're fighting. And then I get a call from the recruiter. I was literally in class, actually in my high school class. I was in my AP glove class and I saw his number and I left the class and I picked up the phone and he told me that I had not gotten the waiver. And that because I had had multiple tumors, my risk of getting cancer again was too high and that I would not be able to go. And I walked back into that classroom and I started crying. And this teacher, actually, I love this teacher. He is in my mom's department. He's a fantastic guy. He ended class early that day because I think he, I don't know if he knew exactly what had happened, but like that was not. But he knew. Some, yeah, he knew like something that was not something you were going yeah. through. That was not something that I did regularly in the classroom. Right. And he just let us go. Um, she was the president of the student body. She doesn't cry. Because I just could not <laughs> keep it together that day. And because you worked so hard, right? to that moment to you're and expecting I to I was, get in. Yeah, right? I thought I was going. Like this was April. Like this was April of my senior year. I think I'd only gotten into like two other colleges. So I was like, I thought I was going to West Point. And then I get this phone call and I'm not going to West Point. Mm -hmm. And it's not because I'm not smart enough. It's not because I'm not fit right. enough. It's not because I don't have what you I need to have. Qualities. It's you because had I had cancer when I was six and seven. <sighs> but <sighs> I'm glad you didn't go because you're sitting next to me right now. I'm also, I, I, I like, this is something I've you're said in my life. Mommy, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Things tend not to work out for the better, but. For a reason. Yeah. Right? Like, like there's a purpose. There's a reason to everything, even though in the moment uh, we may be disappointed, we may be angry, we may be upset. Right. Um, God has a, a way of, you know, working things out for the best of us. 
So can you talk about after that, right? So you didn't get in. What did you decide to do after that? So I was really left at a loss because I had only got like the only two other schools that I had gotten into at that point that I was really considering going to was the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the College of New Jersey, which is where I ended up going. But for most of my under like my high school career, I was like, I'm never going to school in New Jersey. I'm getting out of this state. Like I am going somewhere else. You wanted to be adventurous. <laughs> yes. Um, and... So we go and we visit University of Wisconsin-Madison after that. And I just remember not liking it that much. Like, I just remember I was we like- saw it on a rainy week. Yeah, it was really crappy. Um, like the snow, oh, sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed, but like the weather was really bad. And mm -hmm. I just remember like walking in and being like, I don't want to go to school here. Like, I don't mm -hmm. like it here. Or maybe not that, but like, I wanted to want like it more than I actually liked right. it. Right. And that was really sad for me because I had just, I had had my heart set on West Point. And then I like, I was like, now what do I do? And then actually something even worse happened with Wisconsin where that somehow they didn't get my financial aid. My twins financial aid had been sent to them instead. So they couldn't offer me any money because they hadn't received the correct financial aid. So I was, I, my two options were I had gotten like a small scholarship from TCNJ um, which was already in-state, so it was significantly cheaper than Wisconsin. So I was either going to TCNJ or I was going to Wisconsin. And if I went to Wisconsin, I'd have to pay the full price, like the full out-of-state tuition. And I just, not that we like couldn't have afforded to do that. Like not that that right. would have been like- An, an issue for you. Yeah. yeah um, mm -hmm. But I just couldn't rationalize to myself going all the way to Wisconsin, paying $25,000 more. Mm than going to TCNJ. And like, I felt kind of similarly about both schools. Like I didn't really want to go to either because I hadn't had my heart set on either right. the way I wanted to go to West Point. And then we went for a campus tour at TCNJ and I actually- On really, a sunny day. I loved it. I loved it there. And I was, More I was like, okay, like I can see myself going here. Okay. And then I ultimately okay. went there and I did have a good experience. And then COVID hit and I was like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> but you know, what's funny too is TCNJ, like, like, so again, Kevin and I are the athletes and really value athletics. Mm -hmm. And Jean was an, you know, the reason why she was going to West Point is because she was actually a, she won 12 varsity letters, you know, so. 11. Uh, 12, 11. 12. I tore ACL my sophomore year of high school, so right. I only got 11, but. But she won a varsity letter every single season that she, mm -hmm. she played. And um, ironically, when she was at TCNJ, she actually, um, through the hammer or whatever it's called, um, and the shot put in the armory, which is directly across the street from where she got treated as yeah. a child, mm -hmm. right across the street from Columbia Presbyterian. And it was actually hard for me as a mom, like, of course I'm going in there to watch them. But every time we went in to watch her throw, especially during winter, um, I was like, Ugh. you drive the same yeah. route. You drive the same route, yeah. And there's times I was like, Actually, I even said that. I was like, Jane, we should go see Dr. Wiener and tell yeah. him what you're doing. She's... It was like a bitter, bittersweet. Right? Yeah. Like, it was funny because uh, you would um, you would warm up outside the armory and we'd warm up right by that hospital. And it was always mm -hmm. funny going by with my friends and being like, I used to go to that hospital. Like, that's where I used to get treated. And... Mm -hmm. yeah. But you never went and showed Dr. Wiener how well you threw after all of that. I wanted you to. <laughs> Jean, now you are in grad school. Can you talk about 
how, how are you feeling right now, right? You went through chemo, but now you're in a different stage in your life. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say on the whole, I am healthy now. Um, I will also say I do. I think what now when I get sick, I have a tendency to get sick worse than most people do. Like okay. when I get a cold, it lasts longer in me than I think it does in most people. It takes longer to come out. I get sick worse. And I really struggled with this my senior year of college where, because I had a brain tumor scare my senior year of mm -hmm. college because my eyes weren't dilating at the same rate. Like one eye was really big and one eye was really little and I had to go... They caught, they caught this actually because I had fallen at a track meet and I got a concussion um, and then my eyes still weren't dilating correctly. Um, so my sports trainer at TCNJ, she was like, I think you need to go see a doctor about this because I don't see this and it's making me nervous. Okay. So I go to the doctor and he's like, you need to get an MRI because given your history, this might be a tumor in your brain. Um, and that was a really difficult experience for me um, just because... I mean, actually not just because that was a really difficult experience, like the thought I might have cancer again, and I might, this time it might be a brain tumor, like, and I'm 21 in this, like, it's my senior year of college and I'm going to these doctors, I'm getting an MRI and it ultimately turned out to be nothing. Um, but that was really scary because now for me, now that I've had cancer twice, mm -hmm my rate, my risk of getting cancer again is higher. Like my risk of getting mm -hmm. sick again is significantly higher than it is for most people. And I think now I have a tendency to like, when I feel something off in my body, my mind immediately goes to the worst case scenario. Like my mind immediately goes back to you're sick again. Like this is, mm -hmm. you know, this is, and it never is like it is, let me knock on wood, but it has never <laughs> It, it has not come back since I was yeah. six or seven and seven. But um, like that is the reality for me now in that like sometimes a cough isn't just a cough for me. And like that's something I need to be cognizant and be aware of. It's also really frustrating sometimes because just like with the way that I get sick now and like just the extent to which I get sick, it's more than I see my like counterparts, my peers like when they get sick, it knocks them out for a couple of days. When I get sick, it knocks me out for a week. And I kind of just have to keep living my life on top of that, right. um, which is challenging. And I like to say I'm a hypochondriac, but I've earned the right to be a hypochondriac <laughs> because once it's been cancer twice, like not even just once, but mm -hmm, twice, like mm -hmm. I think you have a right to wonder if it's going to be a third time. Right, right. I can that's, 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 you know, what you're living, right? Like yeah. That's, that's your story. That's that's something that happened to you. Are you doing anything um, different or, you know, are you changing your diet if that's a thing or, or anything that you're doing to kind of stay as much healthy as possible? Honestly, no. Um, and that's something I feel a little bit of guilt about sometimes. Like mm -hmm. sometimes when I treat my body poorly, like the way that I'm 23 and like I think most 23-year-olds don't necessarily respect their body the way that it needs to be respected. <laughs> um, and like sometimes when I find myself engaging in that kind of behavior, I feel really guilty about it because I think about like just the extent to which people kind of halted or changed their lives for me when I was sick. Right. And I think if I had, if I get sick again because of something stupid I did, I would feel so guilty about it mm -hmm. just because I've seen 
how like world changing these kinds of illness are. Mm -hmm. Like I've seen it and I don't want to put myself in a position where I will ever go through that again, but I'm also a human being trying to live my life and be young and have fun. And it's sometimes a really challenging line to walk. It's like you're battling with yourself. Yeah. It sounds like you're battling with yourself because yeah, you're, you're still young. You want to explore, you want to do fun things and you want to live a normal, normal life. But in the back, I can imagine that you're constantly thinking about the fact that you're a cancer survivor and that at any given moment, it can come back. We're going to pray and continue to pray that it never does. But I can imagine being in your shoes, thinking about, oh, when am I going to hear those words again? Right. And yeah. So, and yeah. you should never feel guilty about anything. No, just I know. Just you can't live your life wrapped in bubble wrap. Exactly. I know. Yeah. It's like, sure. um, like I get sunburnt really easily yeah. and like, yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, and like skin cancer is something that runs in my family okay. as well. And like, I've been so much better about it. Like I was so much worse when I was younger, but like, and that's a pre- thought that's present in my mind is like, I'm someone who's gotten sunburned a lot in their life. And I'm also someone who's got this history of cancer. Mm-hmm. And I also have like this family history of cancer. So like, when am I going to find out that I might have skin cancer, you know, just given all right. of these odds already mm-hmm. stacked up against me. And like, I truly hope and pray that like, I, I never hear those words, but sometimes I'm like, is it easier to just brace yourself for that reality? Like given what might happen, or mm-hmm. is it easier just to, try to do the precautions the best I can and just keep living my life the way it is. It's a fine line to walk. Yeah, and, it's a tough one because at the end of the day, right, you have to enjoy life, yeah. right? Because we're not here to stay forever, no. right? And so what decisions do you make understanding that we're only here temporarily and yet we have to make the best of it and and we have to continue to you know make decisions and have goals and and attain to those goals and so i hear you when you say that right like um, i'm young right yeah. i want to i want to live my life i have fun live like... your life and and continue to live your life so um yeah but yeah the little like the c word is always in the back of my mind like and that definitely i think is a challenge that not everyone experiences. What advice um, would you give the listeners? So the first thing is there could be a a tendency to kind of fall down a a deep well and be so sad because Mm -hmm. this is happening to you. And you do have to give yourself some time to process the emotions that come with, oh my gosh, this is happening to my baby. This is happening to my baby. Um, And this is happening to my baby multiple times. So you definitely have to like admit you're you're having those emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I think other advice would be to not kind of wallow in that. And then dealing with the medical community, you definitely need to consult and don't ever, ever, ever feel bad about asking questions. We were lucky with Jean's illness that there was two of us there and there's should always be two adults there when dealing with this because you forget what's you're so stressed you forget what is happening or you forget what is said so by having two people there i would definitely always have two people there you can think about questions okay. write everything mm-hmm. down 
keep records because then you can say, wait a second, this happened. I keep typed records and um, mm -hmm. we have all the records because that way, if anything ever happens again, you've got it at your fingertips. Okay. Um, and the last thing too is, cause I'm a caretaker, is you have to allow yourself to be taken care of sometimes too, because you can't take care of the ill baby if you aren't there and ready yourself. Like you can't put everything you have into it because you need a break and give yourself a break every once in a while as a caretaker so that you can become stronger for them. And, and, and that's the hardest part, right? Yeah. Letting other people take care of you, especially yes. when, you know, as mom, it's like, we have to be in control. We, yeah. we got to do this and we got it right. We, yeah. we take care of the household. Maybe that's right? the For first the thing I, <laughs> I learned. I had no control. Yeah. It's just a, yeah. a, you know, mirage of control sometimes. Yeah. But. And letting other people, that sounds like, you know, an amazing advice, right? Yeah. Even in today's reality, right? Sometimes yeah. we just have to let other people take care of us. And that's hard. Yeah. That's really hard. And accepting that. And, and that's, so I'm the one always like helping other friends and doing this. And, mm -hmm. and, um, Jean, I don't know if you remember this story, but I was really, I guess I must have expressed it, but I was really sad that I didn't get my garden planted. And then I think it was a Friday afternoon, like 12 adults show up and they just take care of my garden. Oh, do you remember? You don't remember, I don't remember that. That, that was no, Mrs. Sheldon. But, um, there was one time Christmas that I do remember actually. Um, I think this was dad's school, but yeah. I, a group must have like donated like toys or something. Mm -hmm. And um, was it Kirkendall who showed it up? It was Kirkendall. So one of my dad's colleagues um, was kind of a goofy guy. He showed <laughs> up dressed in a full Santa suit with oh. all of these presents that I think his colleagues had donated for our family. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And this was right as I was going through my first round of chemo. Um, but not my first round, but this is as I was In going the through the chemo. chemo and that was just so special and so fun and like such a fond memory. Mm -hmm. I like, I remember mm -hmm. very clearly seeing guy dressed as Santa walk in and that was just like such a happy memory. Like, mm -hmm. And what advice would you give Jean? Kind of similar to my mom's point. Like, I think you got to like when you're in these kinds of situations, asking why is one of like the most painful things you can do to yourself. Like to think like, and I don't think I really started doing this until after the fact, like particularly when I was going through the West Point stuff. Um, but I just was like, why is this happening to me? Like, why is, and like, I don't think that's necessarily a productive way of thinking. Like, I think it's almost better to just accept that this is happening to you, which is easier said than done. Right. Um, and to just sort of face that as the reality, as opposed to wondering like what, supernatural thing you must have done to incur all of this like painful things brought on to you as such mm -hmm. an, a young age like i think i stopped or i wanted to stop asking why because asking why to me was just super painful because there's no answer there's no yeah. answer like it's just bad luck and i would also say like a big thing for me was learning to accept that this is a part of me and this is something that i won't move beyond necessarily but like something that is just a part of me it's something I've experienced and I don't need to move past it like I I am who I am because of this experience and I love who I am and 
while I wouldn't go through this and again, we love who you are. Oh, thanks, mom. <laughs> but while I wouldn't go through this experience again, it's okay to accept that this happened to me and that this affected my life and continues to affect my life. Sort of just that acceptance, I would say. If you're ever in a situation like this, trying to accept where you're at and accept that this is happening to you and just trying to find the joy that you can in those moments. As we wrap up this episode of Living Beyond Cancer, a story of resilience, we hope you've been as moved and inspired as we have. Remember, resilience knows no bonds, and this story is a testament to the human spirit enduring strength. In the face of adversity, there is the potential for growth, transformation, and the discover of a newfound purpose. If you or someone you know is on a similar journey, take heart in the knowledge that you are not alone. There is strength in unity, and together we can face life's most toughest challenges. To all of my listeners, remember that each of us has a path to follow. It's not so much a destination, it's the journey we must appreciate and value. Thank you so much for tuning in on today's episode. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at unleashing underscore your underscore truth underscore podcast and turn on your notification to know when the next episode comes out. If you would like to be a guest speaker on my podcast, please feel free to email me at thejesusesquilin at gmail.com.